Hello, this is Digital Accessibility, the people behind the progress. I'm Joe Walensky, the creator and host of this series. And as an accessibility professional myself, I find it very interesting as to how others have found their way into this profession. So let's meet one of those people right now and hear about their journey. All right, well, here we go with another episode where I get a chance to meet another accessibility practitioner. And today I'm very pleased to be meeting with Ted Drake. Hello, Ted, how are you? I'm doing great, thank you for asking. Well, I'm talking from my home office in Vashon Island, which is uh, near Blink's headquarters in Seattle. Where are you talking to us from? I'm in Palm Springs, California, uh, just outside of Los Angeles. All right. Well, lovely. Well, yeah, I, I like to get there when uh, things get a little too uh, <laughs> rain intensive here in January. But uh, thanks for taking the time to uh, to be part of this. And uh, you know, maybe a first uh, good place to start is with what you're currently involved with, what you're doing now. Uh, right now, I'm uh, the global accessibility leader at Intuit. Uh, we make TurboTax, QuickBooks uh, accounting software. And uh, it's been uh, it's been a busy year with the COVID. Um, basically, everybody being able to work at home. It seems like we're doing more and more and more, and so it's morphed a lot. We've been uh, this year's been a lot of coaching and a lot of uh, development of uh, other people's careers, and uh, it's been really satisfying. Well, I. I... I imagine being in uh, having that position in an organization as large as uh, Intuit means that uh, you're keep pr pretty busy day in day out. Yeah, and working from home, it's uh, you know a twenty hour workday is no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we get these little benefits from it, so that's good. Well, uh, uh, yeah, one of the main things I like to do with this uh, series is to to find out how people made their way into what they're doing today, you know, what their journey was that that brought them into accessibility and set them on this career path. So um, what would it be for you? Is there some place uh, uh, early on where you can remember that accessibility became, you know, something that uh, uh, you became familiar with and were interested in? Yeah, I, um, I graduated college with a degree in fine art. And I was working for the Museum of Fine Art in San Diego, and I was building websites on the side. This would have been around 1999, 2000, 2001. Um, the museum needed a new website manager. And so I stepped up and said, hey, I can do that because I've been, you know, building sites. Um, that's when I learned about accessibility. Uh, this was uh, Section 508 was starting to be discussed. Uh, there wasn't really much information, but I knew that it had to be accessible. I didn't know what that meant or how it actually worked, but that was this, uh, you know, this goal. And fortunately, the museum world has this amazing organization. It's museums on the web. I think I think they're called something new now. And it's uh, museum uh, website managers and creatives and curators would come together once a year and they would talk about uh, how they were building their stuff and accessibility was always just really a part of the core. Um, and that's where I was learning about how you had to make images, uh, accessible, how you had to create, uh, descriptions of the artwork, um, how to create forms and such. 
And um, it was still it was still the point where I knew how to do it, but I wasn't really getting the connection to the people. Well, a lot, uh, you know, a lot of people have started uh, started in that web development area uh, with accessibility. But when I most people I talked to didn't have any kind of resources or had no idea, and it was just kind of hunt and pack and yeah. meeting one person, finding one one uh, piece of info. And it sounds sounded like you had a little bit of a you know of a launch pad there available for you. Well, what happened was. Um... The world back then was, uh, it was a Wild West show where everybody was building whatever they could to put onto a web browser. And we're talking about Netscape Navigator and Internet Explorer 4. It, it was a mess. Uh, the stuff we were creating was horrendous. And it was no surprise that it wasn't accessible. And then Jeffrey Zeldman and a bunch of other people basically came forward and said, we have to stop this madness and we have to start building websites correctly. And that was the start of standards-based web development. So I got in a little bit early on that. I wouldn't say I was a pioneer, but I was certainly engaged with uh, learning from the pioneers. And uh, when we started over again, that's when we started making things accessible. That's when we started using semantic HTML. We separated the look, the CSS, and the JavaScript and the HTML. That sounds basic today, but that was revolutionary 20 years ago. Um, that's where I started getting into standards-based web development and accessibility just being the way you built stuff. You built it correctly. Um, I left the museum, worked for a couple other companies to transform their sites into being standards-based web development. Um, and from there, I got a call from Yahoo. And what was interesting about Yahoo is that they were one of the first companies to build a front-end engineering platform, engineers that did nothing but worry about the front-end. And those engineers, hardly any of them went to computer school. None of them had computer science degrees. They were all artists and writers and philosophy students and you know political science students but we were all self-taught and we all understood this and you didn't even get in the door unless you knew what accessibility was uh, so it was a really great uh, environment to be around people where you would have hour-long discussions about what is a paragraph versus an order list you know <laughs> um, and so i co-founded the accessibility stakeholders group at into at yahoo which became the Yahoo Accessibility Lab. Um, at, at Yahoo is where I met people that actually use assistive technology. Um, watching them use our products and where they were having problems, that's where it went from theory to reality. And when you see how what you build makes things easy or makes things difficult, that's when you start really getting the connection. Um, and, and accessibility goes from something that you do to check a box to something that becomes a passion and and from yahoo i went into it it's it sounds like then uh you had you started to get into a a research uh element a kind of a shift left before things got to the code level is that what was going on at the lab yeah you know there were some really good examples um i remember i can't remember his name i'm sorry uh, I can't remember his name, but he came into the lab and we worked with Victor. And he's like, I'm working on these charts and I'd like to make the charts accessible. And so he was working with Victor. And what they came up was this concept of this new ARIA live attribute. 
And so when you move through the chart, the ARIA Live would start being updated. And that's how you would find out about, uh, you know, the value of different elements of the chart. Well, that concept of a hidden span that had ARIA Live attributes, that, that's an example of what happened in the Yahoo Accessibility Lab that just became standard. Um, uh, the uh, visibility hidden where we would take the clip pattern and use the clip pattern to hide stuff visually, but it was still available to screen readers. That's another example of something that would come out of the lab. And it's because you had designers and engineers and you had someone that used a screen reader and someone that used zoom magnification. And you put them in a, in a room with no limitations and some amazing things come out of it. And that, that's an example of that. Yeah, and and uh, and so then, uh, did your uh, your work at at Yahoo did, was that then a, kind of a logical move to what you're doing now at Intuit, or or did, were you reframing or kind of looking at it as a different kind of opportunity? I don't know how this happened, but um, most of my career has been with financial software, uh, insurance, and Yahoo, I worked on Yahoo Finance. And so moving to into it was natural because I was just used to working on financial software. But the other thing that really worked with Intuit is it's customer-based. Um, we really do care about the customer and customers are part of everything we do. So it was just sort of a um, moving even more and more to the fact that it's not accessibility as a checklist or something that you read in a book, but accessibility is something where you're meeting with customers, you're watching them balance their checkbooks, you're watching them start businesses, you know, bring on new customers. So it's about how can I use my influence and accessibility to actually, my goal at Intuit is to reduce the unemployment rate for people with disabilities. It's not to sell more copies of QuickBooks, but what I'm hoping is that enough people can use QuickBooks that they can start a new business um, hire more people. Um, and that's, that's my goal is to actually make an improvement in the community. Uh, yeah, well, with, with so many, uh, work opportunities being in, in doing digital work, not having the tools, uh, essentially shuts you out from that, from that whole area. So, uh, so, so it definitely makes a lot of sense. And, and obviously, uh, with the types of products that your organization makes, that, that's the right front line with that kind of thing. Yeah. The other thing I realized uh, at Yahoo and when I moved into it is that the accessibility team is a hub. The accessibility team is the one that looks at everybody's product. And we look at everybody's code. And we look at everybody's experience across a team. So I, I think at our at Intuit when I would when working in the accessibility team, our original core group, we were probably the only people at Intuit that had tried every product. And when you do that, you start realizing where the duplications are, where um, you know, there's 15 different versions of a uh, carousel being used within the same product. So one of the things we did as the central team at Intuit is we started saying, let's not just focus on accessibility, but let's create the platform that all the front end engineers can come together and start talking. Um, let's encourage all the mobile developers to start talking. So 
part of that was building a front-end engineering summit, which was basically to get all, it was for, by, and about front-end engineers. And that really helped uh, break down those barriers because we had people that would be sitting three desks away and had no idea what each other was working on when I first got there. Um, and that, that is now no longer the problem. And I, th I think more people need to see their accessibility team as an asset for more than just accessibility. Well, this, the scenario that you just described and the, the hub approach that you mentioned, uh, it, I, you know, I think of those as being you know, relatively mature representations of accessibility support within an organization, but it takes a lot of work just to get there. So uh, you know, were there certain challenges uh, that you had to overcome or certain ways that you approached it at Yahoo Finance and, and it, into it that got it to where it ended up being? Yeah, it was actually completely different. Uh, at Yahoo, engineers were the priority. So at Yahoo, we never bothered going to pro project managers and designers. We would just go straight to the engineers. Um, that was just the way that it was because they were the ones that were making the decisions. And then those decisions would then go back to designers and product managers. At Intuit, it was completely different. At Intuit, it's like a communal decision. So I wouldn't just go to the, to the uh, engineers. I would go to the project managers, figure out who was leading their team, create a presentation, go to the presentation, meet with 20 people, explain how their product worked, uh, what needed to be done. It was about building... Uh, consensus uh, and explaining how how to improve the customer experience. Uh, so it was a slightly different. Each each company is going to be different. If I was working at a company where business return on investment was the number one priority, then I would do it differently. But at Intuit, the number one priority is customer experience. So I would always focus on here's a video of how this works. Here's a video of a customer using it. You know, that's, that was always the emphasis. And so as you've uh, built things out at Intuit, uh, can you talk a little bit about the different elements of your program? Is, is there a, a, a centralized uh, group informing uh, uh, across the global organization? Are there uh, vertical uh, support for accessibility? Maybe talk a little bit about that. Uh, we've always started as a small group. Um, Lori Samuels actually started. You mentioned you had already interviewed her in a different podcast. Um, and then I came in from Yahoo. Um, it started as very core, like one or two people. And those one or two people, we worked extremely hard, but everything we did was archived, published. So we started building this mountain of information. We created an accessibility champion program about three years ago. And what that's done is it's allowed us to have a really simple way for everyone to become engaged. Uh, it takes anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes to become a champion. We've had over a thousand people complete the process. Um, that has transformed the way accessibility is discussed at Intuit. So now because, you know, like five to 10% of the people at Intuit have champion patches, those conversations are happening every day. Um, and so it's no longer this, you know, this central team. We've got this big cloud of champions. Now, of that big cloud of champions, some of them have stepped forward and say, I want to become the leader of my product. And so they become a level two champion. Uh, 
-hmm. which includes more intensive customer experience and training. And then they become part of a, a, like a central group. And that central group works together to promote accessibility and solve problems. Um, and then if they want to become a full-time champion, a full-time accessibility leader, then they can become a level three champion. And that's when they can really focus on how they can impact the entire company. Um, the champion program is volunteer. I'm not going to someone and saying, you're going to become a champion. You're going to become a level two. It's more of let's get everybody to be aware and then allow them to build their careers. In, uh, in addition to the champions, um, how is accessibility uh, brought into the roles for product managers, project managers, researchers, interaction designers, uh, developers? Uh, do people uh, get training or information on their particular role? That's still something that we're working on. We, to be honest, we don't have the greatest role declarations yet. Uh, we have been looking at the, uh, the roles that were created by Teach Access. They're really quite good. Uh, that helps you define how you're going to do different roles. Um, but it's been uh, the ones that are more full-time accessibility, those have been easier to define. What's been a little bit harder to define is how do you do the rubrics so that when someone is doing their mid-year or end-of-the-year projects, uh, uh, reviews with their managers, if they've been spending 10% of their time doing passion projects, maybe working on you know, closed captioning or animations or something like that, how does that get pulled into their end of the year discussion so that they get credit for the work that's not, not part of the core work? You know, It's like as, as a team member, you need to build your product and you need to ship it. And that's what you're mostly being judged upon, but how do you also get judged upon the work you're doing on the side? that's been a little bit harder to, to incorporate. And I think that that's part of your monthly meetings with managers um, because being doing accessibility is about the customer. So you should always be able to talk about your manager and always be able to talk about the work that's being done. Um, but that is a little bit harder to, to get incorporated. And you mentioned that uh, customer experiences is the number one um, item that uh, your organization is attentive to. Uh, kind of, uh, you know, now looking into the future, are there yeah, any initiatives you're able to talk about or just uh, thoughts uh, that you have about kind of things you'd like to achieve or, or be able to see happening in digital products and services like five years from now? Um, it's still, you know, there's so much potential for artificial intelligence. I just created a pathway. A pathway is a way that people can go through like a curated, uh, course. It's a links and, you know, you kind of keep track. I just created one on artificial intelligence and accessibility. I think where we're going to be seeing a lot of it in the future is where you can use artificial intelligence to simplify the process. For a good example is in TurboTax, there might be 30,000 different tax screens, but we're using artificial intelligence to say, hey, this person is filling out their tax form. They only need to see these 10 screens, or maybe they need to see these 15 screens. So it's like simplifying the process by only showing what's necessary. 
um, that affects not just accessibility, but the user experience in general. The more that you can reduce the interactions, I think the more accessible it is. So if it's, uh, instead of showing someone 50 radio buttons when really only five of them are relevant, then let's only show them the five relevant radio buttons. And we know that that's true because of artificial intelligence. Um, we're also looking at um, how we can incorporate uh, OCR uh, for things like I take a picture of my invoice and it takes all the information out of the invoice and puts it into the QuickBooks. If, if by taking a picture, I can do it instead of typing in 15 form inputs, that's gonna be great. Um, one of the things I like is <clears throat> if you use QuickBooks and you have a phone, just having the phone on you when you drive from your house to a client, uh, it can track and it can create a mileage report. And then that mileage report at the end of the week, you go through this list of mileage and you say, okay, this is business, this is business, and this is business. So in you know, 15 seconds, you're creating your, your mileage report. Um, that is so much better than keeping a spreadsheet of, you know, here's when I left the house, here's when I got to the client, here's how many miles it took. And um, I was working with a business owner who was blind, and he was really excited about this because you can be the passenger of a car and you can get those mileage reports. So as he was taking lifts and Ubers and going to different clients, he was able to create that mileage report um, and get deductions that he hadn't had before. Yeah, the, the, those kinds of examples where uh, you have these uh, maybe un unanticipated uh, uh, serendipitous pieces for accessibility are always fun to uh, discover and, and build into our work. Another thing that we're pushing, I'd like to see more is that the accessibility team, we've always been, and this is not just at Intuit, but across all companies, we seem to be the, comp the, the team that is most obsessed with customers. Uh, customers who are underrepresented, customers who don't always have a voice. So it's normal for the accessibility team to start ex expanding into inclusion um, and diversity and ethics. And so that's where we're also looking at is uh, we've expanded our personas. So our personas are not just Joe is a small business owner who's blind. It's now things like... Um, Samantha is a small business owner who's blind, but she's also a single parent of three children, and she runs uh, two side jobs, and she didn't graduate high school. You know, it's like, how can we incorporate more communities into our personas and how we're looking at stuff uh, instead of just, uh, it works with a screen reader, so we're good. Yeah, I, I appreciate you uh, bringing that up because sometimes I think people in accessibility feel siloed sometimes uh, in, in what they're doing and what you just described, uh, you know, broadens it significantly in terms of, uh, you know, how it fits into our overall uh, engagement with other humans. I have another example. Um, this, this, we implemented a um, uh, bilingual uh, articles and there was a switch and that switch said English or Spanish. Now, that seems like a really easy solution for switching between English and Spanish. But when I turned on the screen reader, the screen reader was essentially saying English are off. 
And that's because switches is set English on, English off. And that's because switches tend to be on, off. And that goes back to the ethics position. It's like content ethics. Um, is a non-English truly off? So what they did was they switched from a switch to links, like read this article in English or read this article in Spanish, but it would be you know in that language. Um, and that's an example where the accessibility team can also start pulling in some design ethics and saying, we, we shouldn't treat a community as an off or an on. Mm -hmm. Well, I I appreciate uh, all these great examples that you provided of uh, kind of broadening and looking forward. And, and uh, thank you so much for spending this time to uh, chat with me. I'm sure it will uh, uh, give a lot of people some uh, additional interest in bringing accessibility into their uh, work life or, or possibly to uh, make it part of our profession. Thank you so much for uh, for asking me and for continuing with your series. So there's a great variety of speakers you've engaged with. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye bye, Ted. Bye bye. Hi, I'm Joe Walensky, and as host of the Digital Accessibility Program, I like to keep the focus on our amazing guests. But I'm always excited about my role as Accessibility Director at Blink the producer of this program, and I'd like to share that with you. Blink is the world's leader in evidence-driven design, and we work with a wide variety of clients. Founded in Seattle, we also have offices in Boston, New York, Austin, San Diego, and San Francisco. Our stated mission is to make technology human. Embracing inclusive design and accessibility brings all of us closer to that mission. We bring accessibility in every one of our projects. Our philosophy is that each of our practitioners should understand how accessibility applies to their own work. Accessibility is not a separate department or activity for us. Our researchers, designers, and developers all employ accessibility principles at every stage. If you have a need for research and design services, Blink is a partner with a full-time commitment to making your product or service accessible and a great experience for all of your customers. Some of the specific areas where we can help, using research to better understand the needs of your customers with disabilities, innovating to make sure your accessibility is the best in class design. We can move existing designs to development in a sprint and maybe most importantly, we provide a turnkey transformation to an accessible site or app. Of course, compliance status is something that we always include as part of the service. If any of this is of interest, please get in touch with me directly at joe at blinkux.com. That's J-O-E at B-L-I-N-K-U-X.com. Thank you. And please take a moment to rate our program in whatever app you use.